0: You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat and um, just take some time to listen and appreciate to the following piece of music that's going to be played. on may 28 1992 dressed in formal black tails the principal cellist of sarajevo orchestra he sat down at a fire scarred chair surrounded by rubble and concrete and rebar the acrid smell of uh, of explosives was still in the air that day and and the sound of gunshots could be heard in the distance he sat outside of what was the day before a bakery but was now a graveyard you see previous to that day 22 civilians were waiting in a line to buy bread outside of this bakery but a bomb exploded in the bosnian war and every single one of them was killed so on that day and every day that followed for 22 days one day for each of the victims the cellist of sarajevo sat in the charred carnage and played this song it's called adagio in g minor for 22 days the cellist confronted the ugliness of war with his only weapon beauty beauty And as he pulled the bow over the cello strings, it was as if the beauty of his presence repelled the violence of war. The beauty of the music echoing in the chaos of war offered hope to the people of Sarajevo, but also it offered a greater picture of reality to the soldiers who were destroying the city. It's beautiful. There's something about beauty. You see, this summer we're 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 in a series called Reason to Sing, because us as Christians, we have lots of reasons to sing. Many reasons to give our thanks and our praise. And today I want to bring your attention to one of the reasons why I sing. But it's also one of the reasons why each one of you sing as well. And it's beauty. We sing because of God's beauty that as is at work in our world. It's a reason that we sing. And now, I was joking with my wife this, this week saying that today's message is maybe not going to land for you left-brained analytical types, all right? I have a number of friends who are engineers, uh, and I'm talking about beauty this morning, so you're going to have to stick with me. <laughs> but there's gold here to mine. And for those of you who are right-brained, the the artistic type, the creative type, uh, my prayer is that this morning will be like food for your soul. May it be food for all of our souls, because beauty is the reason that we sing. One of the reasons uh, that we sing, uh, and it's because beauty, God's beauty in the world, when we see it, when we experience it, it pulls something out of us, When we see it, when we experience it, beauty draws out our thanksgiving. It draws out our praise. We see beauty sometimes when we say, I want in. (laughs) I want to be part of that story. And God's story is a beautiful story. Now, beauty is hard to put into words, right? Beauty is something that is more caught than it's taught. It's hard to define, but, but we know beauty when we see it. And I wonder, just for a moment... Where do you often see beauty the most in your own life? Where do you see beauty? Where have you experienced a moment of beauty that that draws you in, that makes you want to sing, that makes you want to be part of the story? Where do you see beauty? Beauty is a cello music confronting the chaos of war. Beauty is a dancer bringing emotion to life through movement. It's the taste of a sweet Okanagan peach in the heat of the summer. Beauty is the moon rising over the horizon on a clear evening with the people that you love. It's the sound of waves lapping against the stones on the shore as the sun sets. Beauty is a work of art, a Rembrandt or a Monet. It's the turn of a phrase in a poem that captures reality with obscure accuracy. Beauty is that moment when you have read the final page of a good book and you close the cover, you put it to your heart for just a moment, and you sigh. It's beauty. Beauty is hard to put into words. But here is as good a definition as I have ever come across when it comes to beauty, and it's from Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard says that beauty is, now mark this, beauty is goodness made manifest to the senses. Goodness made manifest to the senses. And because goodness comes from God, beauty is at its very core God's goodness. That has been made manifest to our senses that's the reason that beauty makes us sing it's the goodness of God that that comes to life in our midst and the Bible orients us to the fact that beauty in and of itself it originates in God right Psalm the psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 1 says this it says the heavens declare the glory of God The skies proclaim the works of his hands. You know, the psalmist is saying that that when we look out on the world, when when we behold the heavens, the cosmos, and all that is contained in, in God's creation, we don't simply get a glimpse of God's vastness, his bigness. We get a glimpse also of his grandeur and his beauty. It's not just his vastness or his grandeur but it's also his beauty. I don't know have any of you seen any of the pictures that have come uh, you know over the last couple of weeks from the James Webb telescope. Have you seen these pictures? These pictures of of the cosmos that when we look to the heavens we see the glory of God, not simply the grandeur of God, but his beauty. <laughs> Elsewhere the psalmist says one thing I ask from the Lord the only thing I seek that I might may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. The psalmist desires to gaze on God's beauty, the beauty of who he is, his grandeur, yes, but also his goodness manifest to the senses. The point is, beauty begins in God. And as God creates, he writes beauty into his creation. Right? We see this in two particular places uh, in the Bible. First uh, is in Genesis 2. The first I want to draw your attention to is in Genesis 2. Right? We, we read about, about God writing beauty into his creation because we read about the Garden of Eden. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, the very first thing God essentially creates and puts together is a garden, not a desert, not a wasteland. But a garden. And in Genesis 2, verse 9, it speaks about the trees in the garden. And it says this it says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, that were beautiful, and they were good for food. Now, you notice how in this text that the beauty of the trees comes before the usefulness of the trees? Yes, the trees are useful for food, but the beauty comes first. They're pleasing to the eye. And this is where where people uh, like my engineer friends, we need to pay attention, (laughs) right? The Bible is careful to tell us how God wrote beauty into the world he made. Beauty before function. (laughs) And it's to be cherished. It's the reason we sing. The second place we see beauty written into God's creation is in Genesis 1. And, of course, this comes before Genesis 2. But there, if you remember the story in Genesis 1, with, with each act of creation, God looks over all that he has made, and what does he say? He says, it is good, right? It is good. And then on the sixth day, when he makes woman and man in his image, he looks on them and says, it is very good. And the word we translate good here is the Hebrew word tov. Maybe you've heard this word before. It's a word that speaks not simply about good, but about delight, delight. It's a word of delight, and so we could translate the Hebrew word tov into the English word beautiful. God looks over all that he has made and says, it is beautiful. It is very beautiful. Beauty originates in God, and he has written that beauty into the creation that he has made. And this is why I really like Dallas Willard's definition of beauty so much. Beauty is God's goodness made manifest to the senses. When you see beauty, when you experience moments that are beautiful, you are a participant in God's goodness. You're a recipient of it, which in turn is the reason that we sing. It's a reason why beauty pulls something out of us, why we want to be part of the story and why we give thanks and praise. So, beauty is God's gift to us. It's a gift. But it's different than some of the other gifts God has given us. I spoke about the beauty of eating an Okanagan peach uh, earlier. Has anyone experienced that beauty? Come on, with the, when, the, when the juice is warm uh, and you're outside. <laughs> God has given us the gift of the peach tree to produce fruit that nourishes our body. That is one kind of gift. But he gives us, he gives us that fruit to eat. That's one kind of gift. But the smell of the peach, the sweetness, the texture, The color that is a whole other gift altogether the gift of beauty is different than the gift of provision God gives us daily bread for survival but he gives us beauty for flourishing it's a different gift you remember when Israel was wandering around the desert for 40 years right And God gave them a gift of provision. He he provided manna and quail for them to eat each day. It sustained them. It kept them alive. But you know what else God did in the desert? (laughs) He ordered artists and craftspeople to carve and create intricate pieces of art to adorn the tabernacle with. (laughs) In the desert, God provided food for for human survival but he created beauty for human flourishing. It's a different kind of gift. Makoto Fujimura is an internationally renowned artist uh, and a Christian. And he tells a story about being a newlywed uh, in his book called Culture Care. And Makoto explains how finances were tight when he was a newly married uh, man with his wife Judy in those early days of marriage. Money was tight. He worried about his finances. Uh, Judy was working on a master's degree, and Makoto taught at at a special education school uh, during the day, and he painted in the evenings. They were literally starving artists. (laughs) They could barely make ends meet. And one evening, while Makoto was worrying over their finances, Judy came home with a bouquet of flowers. And Makoto, the artist, (laughs) He got angry, and he said, how could you think of buying flowers if we can't even eat? (laughs) And Judy replied with words that he says he will never forget. They're ingrained in his memory forever. She said, yes, but we need to feed our souls too. Beauty feeds a part of the human spirit that food alone cannot. It simply can't. It's a different kind of gift from God. One that doesn't simply help us survive, but one that helps us flourish. So when you see beauty, when you experience it, there's reason to sing. Because beauty is a gift from God. It's his food for our soul. And here is what all beauty essentially does. Beauty points beyond itself to something greater. That's what beauty does. It points beyond itself to something greater. I remember the day that, uh, that I bought Gina's engagement ring. I was on a budget. I was a young man and I didn't have a very good uh, job, but I wanted to get the nicest ring possible because I hadn't sealed the deal and I wanted to make sure that this really worked. And I learned a life hack in those days. That you don't always have to buy the biggest ring because you can buy a smaller ring as long as it has a good cut and clarity It will look as nice as a bigger ring, and no one will be the wiser. You save a little money, so you tuck that away if you you might need that to to some of you. (laughs) And so that's obviously what I did. And when we first got engaged, people would look at the ring and they'd say, Oh, how beautiful. What a beautiful ring. And it was. But the thing about an engagement ring is that the beauty of the diamond, it points to something greater. It points to the greater reality of covenant love. It points beyond itself to something greater. That's how beauty works. When we see it, when we experience a beautiful moment, we are invited to see a greater reality. And the greater reality, well, two things I want to draw our attention to. First, that beauty points us to the greater reality of God himself, the beautiful one. When the psalmist speaks about the beauty of the Lord in Psalm 27, 4, the the verse I read earlier, the beauty of which the psalmist is speaking about uh, is the beauty of God's goodness. And his goodness is his character. It's who he is. The psalmist is speaking about God's love and his joy and his holiness, his righteousness, his provision. All beauty, it points beyond itself to the beauty of God. Which means that beauty is a kind of space where we can meet with God. I wonder if you've ever considered that. That beauty is a kind of space where where we actually can meet with God. An experience of beauty can become a divine encounter with the beautiful one himself. Because it points to him. That is, of course, if we have eyes to see the one to whom all beauty points. So, when we stand on the shores and we watch the beauty of a sunset, the beauty of the sunset not only opens our eyes to the grandeur of God, it's an invitation to meet with Him, the author of beauty. It's a divine encounter. God is present by His Spirit. Jesus has made way for that. And he wants us to live in a different story, a better story. Beauty points to God himself, but it it points to something else. It also points to the way God intends the world to be. Beauty points beyond itself to the way God intends the world to be. It points to the way God intends you and I to live with one another (laughs) And with the beautiful creation he's given us. That was the story in Genesis 1, remember? God had just made the world just as he wanted it to be. And he looks over it and he says, it is tov. It's good. It is tov. It is good and beautiful. God made his world beautiful. Beautiful. And it's not simply the beauty of the trees or the birds or the flowers, but it's the beauty of human relationships that flourish with one another. Is there a more beautiful thing than to see reconciliation? And it's the beauty of a world that that flourishes under God's good order. See, beauty points beyond itself to the way God intends His world to be. But there is a challenge that we all face in this, right? <laughs> because the world isn't always beautiful. We live uh, in a world that is east of Eden. <laughs> we're all broken, and we're broken by sin. We live in a world that is marked with the ugliness of broken relationships and, and broken ecosystems and, and broken bodies. But herein lies the gospel that Jesus announces. God does not leave us to languish in the ugliness of sin and brokenness. He sent Jesus to restore us back to Tove, back to goodness, back to beauty. <laughs> Jesus comes not simply to forgive our sin, but to restore us to beautiful. It's the story of the gospel. The very first recorded sermon that Jesus preached was in a little village called Nazareth. It's actually the text that Brendan read this morning. And Brendan said, Keith, are you gonna preach on Isaiah 61 as I told him what I'm gonna preach on? he said, that's the text I chose for this morning for the intro. It was the text that Jesus preached for his very first sermon. And the sermon was Jesus' way of announcing the gospel. This was Jesus' way of saying, look, I have come from God to sort out the ugliness of the world once and for all. And the text Jesus preached from is in Isaiah 61. And here's how it begins. Jesus opens the scroll, and he turns to this text, and he reads, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is beginning to announce the gospel. And if we read on two verses later from this verse, in verse 31 of Isaiah 61, it says this, that he's pronouncing good news to the poor in order to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, Jesus has come to restore the world to Tove. He's bringing beauty back. Beauty instead of ashes. And it's reason to sing. And the point is, the gospel of Jesus isn't simply God's provision for our survival after sin, though it is. But it's God's provision for a flourishing life to restore us to the goodness and beauty that he created us for. And so beauty points beyond itself to the the way God intends his world to be. And here's the thing. this This is something that I experience often. When I see that kind of beauty, when you see someone who's living a life just the way that you think God intends it to be, there's something about those moments where you feel like, I want in. I want to be part of that story. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Gina and I, we we love musicals. And now, Les Mis is my favorite. And if you've been around here for a while, you know that, because I have many sermon illustrations from Les Mis. And so you don't want to get me started this morning. or I'm going to start singing, uh, and you'll want to end the service uh, right away. So I'm not going to go there. Sorry. But my second favorite is the musical The Greatest Showman. I don't know if any of you have seen this, of course, the great Hugh Jackman. Uh, it's not a Broadway musical yet, uh, hoping that it will be one day. And The Greatest Showman, it, it tells the story of P.T. Barnum in his circus. Uh, so maybe there's the context. Maybe you went to the circus last weekend uh, here in Kelowna. But part of the storyline traces how, how Barnum saw past the grotesqueness of the bearded lady. And all the other peculiar characters in the circus. He saw past them. And he restored dignity to their lives by honoring the unique gifts that they had to offer the world. Well, there's this scene at the very beginning uh, that gets Gina and me every time we see it. You know, it kind of hits you right in the feels, this scene. It's the backstory to of Barnum growing up. Uh, and he comes from poverty. His father has just died. It's left him orphaned, and, and he has nothing to his name. He has to steal bread just to survive. The world is unkind to Barnum, especially the elite are unkind to him, the well-to-dos, the so-called beautiful people. And so in this scene, Barnum has just tried to steal some bread from, uh, for, for his starving body to be nourished. But as he tries to take the bread and run, he's tracked down by the vendor who is filled with rage and he kicks him to the curb. And there is this young boy sitting against a brick wall, down and destitute. And the whole scene up to this point is filled with with browns and beiges. The colors are bleak. And you can really feel this boy's dejection. But then, While on the ground, Barnum is handed a bright red, beautiful apple. It's the only real color that appears in the whole scene. And as he looks up to see, he sees a woman who is covered by this hood as though she has to live in the shadows. Her head is deformed and grotesque, but it's adorned with the brightest smile you've ever seen. Her face is really hard to look at, but her eyes dance with beauty, kindness. In the midst of the ugliness of this whole scene, there's beauty everywhere. And the most beautiful thing is a woman who has been pushed to the margins of society, handing hope to a boy in need through a kindness of gesture when no one else would. (laughs) Oh, it's beautiful. And when I see it, I want to be part of that story. <laughs> because it's a reflection of the kind of life that God intends for people to live. It draws us in. It is the Tove life. The scene orients us to goodness. It's a living picture of God's intent for beautiful life a beautiful world, a world that flourishes, not simply survives, but flourishes. And when we see it, we want in. We want to be part of the beautiful story. Makoto Fujimura, again, he says this. He says, an encounter with beauty, it can show us what could be, and it can make us rightly dissatisfied with the way things are. An encounter with beauty can show us what could be and it can make us rightly dissatisfied with the way things are I agree so like a scene in a musical or a cellist in Sarajevo beauty points beyond itself to the reality of the life that Jesus has saved every single one of us for a restored life of Tove, a good and beautiful life lived the way God has intended all along. <laughs> yes, Siri, you too. <laughs> Gina asked me this week, she said, Keith, what is, please, because give me the practical application. Keith, what is the practical application for your sermon on beauty? <laughs> and I just laughed. <laughs> there isn't one. Beauty is not practical. But it is necessary. It's necessary for our flourishing. It's a gift of God that helps us see him and his gospel. Beauty for ashes. It inspires us to live a life that reflects his goodness. We need beauty. So, church, if you're an artist, create beautiful things and if you're a dancer dance if you're an author write. if you're a poet be poetic if you're a musician play or a singer sing if you're a gardener (laughs) garden we need your help to manifest God's goodness to our senses and if you're an engineer, or someone like me, like all of us, I invite you simply to delight in the beauty around us. It's reason to sing. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good and beautiful God. And your love is beautiful. Your spirit is beautiful. <laughs> your embrace is beautiful. Your character is beautiful. Your holiness is beautiful. Your otherness is beautiful. Your closeness is beautiful. Oh, and Jesus, may, may we even dare say it, <laughs> we are also beautiful because you put your fingerprint into the world and you've made us in your image. And so Jesus, as we step into our week, (laughs) mark us with your tov and make us beautiful people. And we see it when we experience beauty. May we raise our hearts and sing, you are good. You are good. You are I invite you to stand as we sing.